0: Hello and welcome to the Tess English Teacher Podcast. I'm Jamie Tom, I'm an English teacher and the author of a range of books on education. A burning question for English teachers returning to school is how to get young people deeply invested in reading again. And also how best to close the gaps that will inevitably be caused by five months away from our school buildings. Luckily for us, Alex Quigley is the perfect man to provide us with 45 minutes of guidance about how best we can do that. A former English teacher, Alex is now a senior associate at the Education Endowment Foundation, and he's also the author of a range of brilliant education books, including his latest, which is Closing the Reading Gap. In our discussion, we look at how best we can support readers who will find returning to reading demands particularly challenging. Before going on to examine what we can do in our lessons to improve our students' understanding and ability to work on comprehension skills. We then unpick what we can do to improve whole class reading strategies. And in the final section of our interview, it's the holy grail for English teachers Alex gives some great advice and great tips on how we can support young people to build up our reading habit. I hope you really enjoy the episode and I hope it makes you feel as positive, as energized, and enthusiastic about getting back into the magic of teaching as it did for me. Um, hello, Alex. Thank you very much for being uh, the first guest this year on the Tess English Teacher podcast. Good to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, you you know, your legendary first appearance, I think, uh, might have even broke the 10,000 listener views. It was absolutely monstrous. Uh, so I'm sure this one will help and assist as many teachers as the conversation we had on vocabulary. So thank you very much for that. Um, so we're going to go straight into it because you are, Alex, the man for closing gaps. Not only uh, did you write the, the absolutely magnificent cl- closing the vocabulary gap, Uh, But your latest book um, is just as as kind of astronomical and just as brilliant and as helpful for teachers, which is Closing the Reading Gap, um, which I read over the summer um, and I absolutely love. This sort of packed full of stuff that I've I've put straight into practice since we've been back teaching in Scotland. Um, So in terms of gaps, this is obviously a time of when there's going to be real kind of difficulties and gaps as students come back to school um, after this kind of five-month break. Um, so I was wondering if you might be able to share, kind of shed some light on on what you think the main sort of reading barriers students will face when they get back into school.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, there's a lot we don't quite know around our students' experiences, and some will have, you know, really quite thrived away from school, and, mm. and then lots won't. Um, I think, you know, We can make some accurate predictions, though, and I think there's probably a bit of a Matthew effect that's happened in terms of those students who, before COVID, before lockdown, were reading well, accessing texts, in the classroom, probably doing their homework that bit better, having easy access to books and technology and all of those things. I think those reading rich students will have probably been okay during the lockdown mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't have generalized too much, but they will have had the support materials. They will have had just the skill to be able to read independently and all of the challenges that, you know, home, home learning has thrown up. The better you can read, the more the more you're able to tackle that challenge and then you know I've dug into a lot of the evidence for the book around reading and disadvantage and and we know that lots of students just don't own books they won't have access at home to that kind of literacy environment so that's not just book ownership but you know talk around the dinner table, easy access to technology all of those things. Um, that you need that access and practice to to be reading habitually and reading well so we can probably anticipate that for the students who struggled with reading and accessing our curriculum before lockdown it's just got that bit harder and and for those who are doing well before it they've probably been okay and, and made some progress i think everyone will come back and need some habit forming again you know that kind of of focusing on reading, responding to discussion, Mm -hmm. writing about what you've read, all of those habits. Um, But I think fundamentally there's probably been a big um, gap between those who've been reading and been able to read and those who've struggled to read and haven't read habitually.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if we might maybe, because we'll look at sort of general strategies a little bit later, but I wonder if we could maybe pick up with those students' for whom that that gulf has widened, and you know who for whom the return to school is going to be even more kind of anxiety driven and stress driven because yeah. of the 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 demands on them as readers that will be placed on them and um, so I wonder if you could uh, i mean just reflect on some strategies that might be useful for those for those students who really
1: will struggle with reading demands when they go back into schools i think I think the first thing to say is that we know a lot about reading. We know that teachers can make a real difference. We know about the strategies. So so for me, there, there are a lot of positives. And I think a key thing is to support every English teacher with having that knowledge and understanding about why children struggle with reading, about specific issues like dyslexia and poor comprehension and, and, and those details. I mean, you know, the truth is I, I wrote about these things because I spent seven or eight years in the classroom, struggling away, not really knowing what to do if a child had dyslexia, not really knowing, you know, you're teaching Shakespeare and and a child can't write very well how they're going to write an essay with all of the challenge of the understanding and then the skill of just writing coherent sentences. And and I think we all muddle through, but actually there's, there's definitely a knowledge knowledge gap a teacher knowledge gap around the specific issues around reading difficulty reading challenge and what to do about it so so for me the first thing is that we need to support English teachers understanding reading that bit better Mm -hmm. I think there's a there's a false assumption that you know we we did okay at school you know we're going back there with qualifications we can all read and we can just assume that we know how to teach reading and frankly I know how to read aloud but when I started teaching in the, in the classroom, I didn't really know how to teach reading deliberately, how to break it down, how to unpack it. So I think there's there's some understanding there. And I think what I tried to um, convey in the book is break that down into kind of manageable chunks. So firstly, I think there's some understanding around what makes a text difficult. So, we know that, you know, reading a Dickensian sentence is, you know, not you know typical uh, of modern day reading, but we, we often don't quite know what to do differently with it. Um, so in the book, I talk around, you know, sentence length is a challenge and it kind of, you know, it takes away all of that bandwidth you have if you're a novice trying to track where the verb's going and trying to, to follow that sentence. So it's really handy to have some short. Sure- shortcuts around understanding what makes a text difficult and just one on a micro level I talk in the book around you know if a sentence has three clauses or more it's going to strain the working memory of most of our novice students and just having these small details around sentence level around vocabulary knowledge understanding you know why Shakespeare is challenging you know, and then why Dickens is challenging, but in slightly different ways, because of the text type, because of how they use language, because of the background knowledge required. Um, And so I think there's something important around understanding the difficulty level of texts, and therefore you make the better choices for Keystone 3 Mm -hmm. to build that platform of knowledge and skill, ready to tackle the more complex texts in GCSE and and A-level for many students. So I think there's something first around before we get to the child, let's think around our teacher knowledge and let's think around our understanding of texts. What makes them difficult? Right from the kind of the background knowledge of the world you need to access Shakespeare down to the sentence level knowledge you need to read a Christmas carol. Um, And then you get to students. And then I think what I try and break down in the book is there's a, a model called the simple view of reading, which shows how... On a, on a simple level, reading's about decoding, your ability to lift those words off the page, and it's about your comprehension, your ability to understand those words. And once you have that simple view kind of locked in, then you can start to think, okay, well, if a child's got problem with decoding, then that's, that's what we kind of know as dyslexia. And dyslexia is, you know, a, bit of a, a broad term, for an issue where you're just not connecting those letters and sounds. Um, And in the book, I try and unpack it that bit further, but trying to understand, if you know the principles of decoding, if you understand the barrier of dyslexia, then you can start in the classroom to recognize some of the practices that deal with it. Um, So one area, which is a a real helpful bridge between decoding and, and comprehension between dyslexia and being able to access the text is fluency. But a lot of children who are dyslexic are disfluent. And you can sit down next to a child, and you can read with them for two minutes, and you know they've got that stop-start rhythm, and they're, they're breaking it up, and and words are tripping them up. And what you can have, you can have some students who are very dyslexic and, and need obvious additional supports. But you can have children who've got mild barriers around decoding and fluency, and we need to know, we need to be able to sit down next to them and unpick what is their problem. And that's where, in the book I spend a chapter on it, but looking at reading barriers and understanding it could be a decoding issue, it could be a fluency issue, or it could be a comprehension issue. They they can read the words off the page, it sounds like they understand, but then you ask a couple of questions, and they don't really have the the background knowledge to understand, you know, what Dickens is about, what what this poem is really trying to express about war and conflict. So for me, we need to you know get underneath reading and and, and break down the different challenges. And you know, it's not easy to just convey all uh, an array of simple answers, you know, in a quick podcast. There needs to be here so teachers. Accessing some of that knowledge, mm-hmm. reading upon it, learning about it, and then you get to the strategies. Mm-hmm. And, and when you do start to get to a lot of the strategies, actually they're really familiar to most teachers and they sound like just good teaching. So mm-hmm. we have explicit teaching, we have modeling, we have you know be, just reading aloud and being a model, asking questions. you know the, a lot of the solutions around weak reading they're not this kind of silver bullet, they're not colored paper, you know, there's no gadget that fixes it, there's a real deliberate explicit building of knowledge and understanding, connecting the curriculum up, asking great questions, and and then on a really simple level there's some strategies. So, you know, one of the things I talk around are these kind of just basic reduce repair strategies. So, some weaker readers, they don't do the really obvious things, so you give them a poem title or you give them a non-fiction text and they just don't look at the and use the titles to give them clues and make predictions Mm. and yet the the student next to them you know in their in their heads they're making all of those connections and it's often tricky to spot it Um, but the more deliberate and explicit we get around teaching skimming scanning you know these kind of micro strategies even just looking at glossaries and looking at headings the more we're explicit about the minutiae of reading, the actual, the, the better we address and and support all readers. But but most definitely, we support those readers with with barriers to their understanding. And and you know, I wrote a whole book around vocabulary. We need to actually yes get, help them access the big picture and the world of the texts and and literature over time. But but often they're tripped over by individual words. They're tripped over by a sentence with multiple clauses and they can't quite connect the verb to the subject. So the more we break down the act of reading, the more we're deliberate and explicit about what an expert does when they read, then the more we can support every every reader will benefit, every student will benefit, but those who've got who struggle with reading will benefit the most.
0: I think it's it's really really helpful. Thank you, but one of the things that's sort of running through my mind is just how how much better used, you know, English department staff meetings could be, in in everything you're talking about here. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, in in this podcast, I mean, we can we can discuss strategies. We can unpick some really really helpful ways that teachers can apply. But what you're talking about in terms of what is really at the at the rudiments of reading, and what are we asking young people to do? That is a that's such a powerful kind of department meeting to sit down with a text and yeah. really really engage with that and wrestle with it and think, actually, what are we asking our, our young people to do here?
1: And there, is, there are some really accessible strategies. So, you know, one of the things I talk around is, I, I've borrowed a strategy around just using a ready reckoner where you look at a hundred words from a text and, and very quickly you can just make a judgment of its difficulty level. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the things to recognize in every English department is everyone's got a different English degree, we've all got different backgrounds and so often our knowledge of reading is really variable, you know, in truth my, my knowledge of grammar teaching, my knowledge of, of how reading develops and reading barriers came from teaching English language A level mm. and if I didn't have that I would have, you know, I'd, I'd have sat on my literature degree and I'd avoided these tricky questions And and it wasn't until it, like, even though I taught English language, it wasn't until later in my career where I was able to have that kind of access to more evidence and more support that I was able to unpack these challenges. And but I think now and I didn't feel that this was the case 15 years ago. I think teachers have more access to evidence based resources. You know, I, you know, I'd argue for my book, no doubt, but there are lots <laughs> of resources out there about the science of reading and breaking it down. And, and you know, curriculum and the development of knowledge and understanding and vocabulary. I think these are things now that in most English departments, the, there's some knowledge of. But you're right, we need to have deliberate planning and CPD time because this doesn't happen overnight. It's not easy, um, and it's not natural. You know, one of the things around you know, reading and writing. It's not like talk. It's an unnatural act. You know, it's quite. We, we've learned it quite recently, our brains not quite adapted for it. So, you know, children who struggle with reading, you know, it's, it's not as natural as talk. And and it's these, um, you know, factors around the science of reading that not enough English teachers have been supported to deal with. And, and we can't just assume if a child's got a barrier, we send them to the SENCO. We've got to Mm. do better than that. Um, And I actually think, in secondary school often there's too much expectation that the english department teaches reading mm-hmm. you know i would argue i'll argue, you know i argue in the book that your ability to read well is as important if not more important to a science teacher than it is an english teacher because the difficulty level of a gcse textbook is just as high if not higher than hamlet
0: mm-hmm. definitely Um, And I I would say, Alex, in terms of I think one of the the reasons why your books have had such a big impact is because they are because all of a lot of the the previous work reading I've done into reading and things is is quite convoluted and difficult to make sense of. But your books, I think, just make everything crystal clear. And that's why what we need is every English department in the land to have a copy of this and use it as (laughs) as as a sort of protracted CPD over the course of the year. Uh, I think that's what we need. Um, all right, what I might do, Alex, is if you, if you don't mind, I'll take you through um, a couple of glorious mistakes I made in my own lessons today and yeah. ask you what you might have done differently. Um, yeah. The first, um, I, was, I was at leisure with the Sunday Times uh, on Sunday, um, um, you know, having a, a relaxing time, thinking, I, I usually go through and, and try and find some good articles to, to copy and use for sort of stimulus in, in lessons throughout the week. Um, and I found one I thought was really good. It was Matt Rudd. It was funny. It was engaging. And I photocopied it. And I used it with one of my classes um, today in, in a sort of comprehension-based activity. Um, and it, it was a glorious failure, Alex. So, so what, what I was wondering um, is, because comprehension is at the root of so much of what we do as English teachers. Yeah. And your book is it's just packed full of really useful, helpful strategies to kind of improve our practice with that. And I wonder if you would mind sharing some of them with, with listeners.
1: Yeah, so I so comprehension, it's the goal of reading. Um, yes, fluency matters, decoding's the essential platform, but ultimately we need people to comprehend, whether that's a science textbook, whether that's, you know, a um, Hamlet or or a great poem. Um and for me, one of the things um that we all do naturally in the classroom is we ask questions about the text we unpick the interesting bits Um, you know we check on their understanding we get them writing about what they've read we do all of those kind of typical practices Um, but I think actually if you step back a little the reason why that text may or may not work is how well that text is connected to the curriculum how well it's correct connected to their understanding of the world because invariably most of the students won't read the sunday times so it's an unfamiliar genre The 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 topic might have been unfamiliar so straight away they've got a few hurdles to overleap they've got the genre they've got literary features that they're not so familiar with they've got vocabulary and and a topic they're not familiar with i think for me rather and in you know, okay, we might sometimes draw upon something we've found that's interesting and accessible, but largely our practice needs to be a curriculum development that's consciously, deliberately connected at as many steps as possible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're choosing a, a text from the Sunday Times, we're thinking that that topic is deliberately linked to another text that we're teaching. And, you know, if it's, you know, what was the topic? Specifically,
0: um, it was on iPads. It was on banning. Okay. Uh, it was a kind of on why iPads, why kids shouldn't have iPads. Um,
1: okay, so so it's trying to identify. Okay, what what's the domain? What's the topic? Mm. What's the you know kind of vocabulary? Depending that the knowledge, depending that. So if it's about technology, if it's about um, the banning of of text and technology, there needs to be a platform of understanding. Of, of that topic and sometimes that requires you know some deliberate sometimes obscure vocabulary being unpacked sometimes it means you're reading multiple texts to try and build up that field of knowledge then once you've got that platform of background knowledge, then everyone can start to be a bit more strategic and then you can start to unpack sentence level stuff. Then you can start to identify the voice of the writer. then you can start to you know look at those literary devices they're using to persuade. But often, you know if it's a tech a nonfiction text, children fall at the first hurdle. They don't know enough about the topic mm. and or they know about iPads, fine enough. But they don't know about the artful way that uh, a journalist writes about prohibition and censorship and and, and those concepts that are actually what the article is really about. It's not about playing games on your iPad, which is what children are familiar with. So for me in the book, I try and kind of get this balance that our curriculum and the way we deliver and teach in the classroom needs to balance knowledge and, and being strategic. And reading comprehension strategies so if you're teaching whether it's the sunday times or a christmas carol you're thinking okay what what's the background knowledge they need to know to just have that entry point into this text to give them the scaffold to then build you know start climbing and start getting to grips with it and and filling in those you know those comprehension gaps so if it's a christmas carol you're looking at you know domains like religion and you're thinking around, you know, patterns of language and, 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 you know, issues like that, once you start to build up enough of the world, you don't need to know every word, you don't need to understand every concept, but you've got a way in, you've got that scaffold to help you, you know, get going, then as we read, we need to be really deliberate and really unpack and begin to use habitually reading comprehension strategies. So it's, they're one of the strongest evidenced, you know, approaches to support reading development. And we kind of use them all the time, often without labeling them so, um, but we need to be a bit more deliberate about them. So one model I talk about um, in the book is uh, reciprocal reading, um, which might be familiar to some people. And what that is, it's a collaborative reading model, although it actually needs a lot of explicit leading by the teacher and, and may actually be retained by the teacher and led by the teacher. Um, you know depending on the group but what that what it does is it unpacks it gives students roles so you have a questioner role a predictor a clarifier and a summarizer and what that overtly does is give children a role and a goal if they're reading this text about ipads from the sunday times one of the students has the overt role to clarify any of the tricky words to try and you know kind of make sure there's no miscomprehensions The summariser has to try and synthesise what the writer's about. The questioner has to, you know, really unpack what's the, you know, writerly intent of this article. And by using this reciprocal reading model, by giving these children these roles, you get them actually deploying reading comprehension strategies. Because what good readers do, often in their head, when you and I are reading in our heads, you know, without, you know, being overt and explicit about it we are asking questions about the text we're making predictions we're connecting our comprehension and we're we're summarizing and synthesizing and then updating our predictions and it all happens in the blink of an eye it's happening in every classroom you know in every English lesson but many students are doing it better than others because they're stronger readers they've got more knowledge of the world. So that they're, they're just able to connect. It's they've got that mental velcro that whenever they read a new text, they connect it with the other texts and words and 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 you know literary features that they know. And if you just go down to one of those strategies, summarizing, it seems so obvious. Okay, you know, we read this poem, we read um On My First Son, you know, we summarize what it means. We might do that verbally. We might write a paragraph about it. We do summarise all the time, but often we'll read, you know, a a text from the Sunday Times and we'll bypass the summarising and we'll go straight to writing a piece ourselves on it, you know, a creative response. Mm -hmm. And that's fine for half the class and for a third of the class who did a great job comprehending it. They answered the teacher's questions. They made, you know, it it look like a comfortable text they're motoring on, they're, they're imitating and writing and, and, and playing with language. And then you've got the other half of the class who, was, who didn't really fully grasp that text. There was a few words they didn't understand. They didn't really piece it together. They knew it was about iPads, but they didn't really get the concept of uh, of what the the writer was wanting us to think by the end of that article. And it's those students that need that deliberate summarizing. They need pretty much things breaking down explicitly for them and then over time you you know you remove the scaffold and they start to more deliberately ask those questions and summarize complex text themselves after they've done lots of practice after they've read quite a few Sunday times articles and become really familiar with the with the features of the genre and i think one of the problems that i certainly experienced is I knew the literature that I'd been taught. I knew the text that I liked. So the key stage three, you know, even parts of GCSE and A-level were the stuff that I was competent teaching. I was competent teaching and knew well, and less, it was less about this deliberate building up from year seven to 11 mm. of this kind of architecture of understanding that is English literature. And, and when we pick individual texts out, sometimes, you know, it's, it works a charm and it's fantastic, but lots of times it doesn't because of all of the potholes that we've described. Mm. So if we're going to read one Sunday Times article, I'd ask, uh, you know, at what point have we deliberately unpacked that genre? At what point have we ensured that they're coming with enough background knowledge and, and the literary devices, etc. if they're going to tackle a really skillful text? And yes, I know in the GCC exams, they've got to sit there with an unfamiliar text. You can't pre-teach everything, but we can be more deliberate whilst they're in that practice phase. Mm. And and it may have gone well today, you know, and it, and it may go badly. We just leave it to chance when we don't kind of orchestrate the curriculum in, in the most connected way possible.
0: Mm. I think that's massively helpful, Alex. Thank you. And it's, it's actually making me think, I suppose, how... I'm, I'm, hopefully it's not just me feeling this, but how that that gap of time where I've not been teaching is actually had, because all these questions I think are, for English teachers, they're, they're, they should be at the back of our mind, but there was me thinking, oh, I'll photocopy this and I'll throw it at them and we'll see where we get on with it, and it's, reading can never be left to that degree of chance, teaching reading ultimately and teaching comprehension, Um,
1: it's much... Oh, oh. Yeah, we, we've all done it, so I, I'm just thinking now, I can remember, you know, bringing in a Charlie Brooker article, <laughs> thinking it was the funniest thing I've read in ages, and then it just dropped like a stone, mm-hmm. because they didn't have the, enough background knowledge to get any of the jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it is about that, you know, thoughtfulness, sometimes it will work, other times it won't, but actually, we need to work as a department here, mm-hmm. and deliberately yeah. connect up what we teach. Definitely, Um, And and even when we do that, sometimes it will fall flat, but those instances will be reduced when we, you know, we work together on it.
0: Definitely. Right, now that listeners uh, are are aware that I'm uh, uh, utterly useless in the class, we may as well continue this. So, uh, if we we fly to the next lesson, and um, I'm teaching drama, uh, but obviously I can't do any drama at the moment, that's one of the sort of safety precautions in place so uh, i've decided to teach them uh, our day out uh, willie russell yep. fantastic player love it um and one of, one of the things we did in the lesson is is we did a little bit of whole class reading yep. uh, we sort of uh, you know kids in different roles all that sort of stuff um and again <laughs> you know this is just a, a kind of emblematic of my day to day that 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 was pretty flat too so Another thing I was, I was interested in picking your brain about, you've got a bit in the, in the book about kind of whole class reading and I often think, if, certainly in, in, in my lessons, unless it's with a class that are particularly uh, effervescent and exuberant, it quite often falls gloriously flat. Um, so I was wondering if you had any, any tips for people who are delving back into whole class reading strategies.
1: Yeah, it, it's a good question. It's one of those daily decisions that, you know, most English teachers, it's just one of those habitual things you do. You, you do it like you've always done it. Um, and it's often a bit like how you were taught as well. Mm. Um, and I talk about it in the book. There's not there's not brilliant research evidence about it. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of this comes down to teacher judgment. But for me, it comes down to thinking around what, what's the goal that we're after. You know, and and then we start to make a choice between different strategies. So, you're talking there about reading Our Day out, and I am from Liverpool, so whenever I taught Our Day out, it did have that kind of special uh, emotional connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the reality of teaching a play is that you do want to bring it to life. You know, so many so many plays are uh, need that kind of interaction, particularly they often need movement. You know, Shakespeare plays is is much more easily understood when it's acted out Um, however the evidence around reading in that way it's often labeled as round robin reading or sometimes it's called popcorn reading where basically you go to different students the popcorn readings less about plays where you have role and more around you know you're reading a text and you just pick a kid and they pick someone else but the problem with the round robin reading is that you're relying on having a group of students who can read fluently read skillfully and draw out this stress and emphasis that brings the characterization to life and the problem is probably your experience today is often you don't have enough students who can play the role with great skill and so i think play reading draws out some of the biggest challenges for us because The safest option when you've not got a group of fluent, confident, confident readers is for teacher-led reading. But of course, that becomes a challenge when you've got (laughs) multiple characters and you want to involve different students. So for me, I think it's about having a steady diet and varying the strategies. If we're going to do the, you know, read out the play, I think we need to, and, and, and we know they're not great readers all of them we probably need to invest in four or five minutes where they do a little forward reading of the characters Mm. they double check certain words Uh, a good one is to work in pairs and just to do a little bit of um preparatory practice and it's a few minutes not much is lost if you're not reading a character you can be making a couple of predictions or you can be set a big question but just that little preparatory time allows those students to probably become you know that bit more fluent that bit more confident you can double check you might want to speak to one student and give them a bit of extra support so if you are going to do this kind of you know multiple readers approach i think it needs more deliberate practice unless you're with an a-level class and they're all fluent and confident then you don't need to think so hard about it i think generally when you're thinking about choices around whole class reading you're thinking okay well what do I want them to get out of it so if you're reading a novel you probably want the focus to be on them comprehending the novel in which case who is the best reader in the class who's going to add the emphasis and stress that's going to be best understood and and, and offer good comprehension it's the teacher so I think a large proportion of our reading in class is going to be teacher-led and there's no problem with that and and that's important for comprehension. That said, that shouldn't be the only experience and children do need to have that practice of reading. It helps with their comprehension, but more importantly, if you're looking to develop their fluency, which should be a goal for us, then we need to make sure that students are reading. Now in the book, when I talk about fluency, I actually uh, offer some strategies that are well-practiced They're really good for really young readers, but they're just as good for older readers, where you can often have peer-to-peer reading, where they could, you know, read an alternate stanza, they can read a paragraph, they can give each other feedback on their reading, they could record one another, or, you know, that sometimes doesn't work, you certainly need to set that up and practice it. You can repeatedly read a poem, and again, be, be working deliberately in pairs. You might have children reading aloud to the whole class. But if you're going to do that, again, be explicit, be deliberate. Is the pupil who's doing that going to have the fluency and confidence to do it in front of the whole class? And I think for me, if I reflect now, I probably too many times just asked people to read without that preparatory time, Mm. without that practice, without being deliberate about it. And so they didn't read so well, but we just moved on anyway. And I think that's a lost opportunity. And I think if we're a bit more deliberate and we, we look at paired reading, choral reading as a whole class, we can actually develop that fluency so that six months later, you know, we get to our day out and, and ch- children have got some strategies around reading fluently. You know, they've, they've practiced it with their peers. They've practiced it as a class. So, you know, it depends on what you're after. Probably there's going to be a, a mixed diet. The teacher's going to lead it. But there are lots of different ways we can go about it. And it's about the teacher making a good choice. And if and if I'm honest about most of my teaching, I kind of taught on instinct, which you know, got me away with it most of the time. I just missed some great teachable opportunities, teachable moments. I just missed some opportunities for better comprehension, better fluency. And and those small victories matter. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to kind of, you know, offer that. Out to English teachers now, and and let, let's just be really deliberate about whole class reading.
0: Mm-hmm. But I'm sure listeners, like I, I was complaining to you before we started, Alex, that we're we're sort of teaching double lessons at the moment, and I'm knackered. It's a Thursday night, but even listening to you is is really energising and exciting because this is this is the sort of bedrock of of what we do as English teachers. This is what we, obviously, one of the things I want to encourage over the next few weeks is is to help these kids. Develop that exciting expression, and those those techniques and methods you've talked about there are are one of the ways in which you know we can empower them to do that. Um, a, good, we, a,
1: a, good, a good, sorry, sorry jump in. A good, no. um, easy, you know, starting point as well is to think about text choice again. Like, you mm. know, you back to the curriculum, yeah. mm-hmm. and I think when we choose something like poetry, that offers a great opportunity for peer reading for mm-hmm. fluency practice because, of course, the rhythms you know, and the cadences of the poem really matter. And that's a good time to focus on students reading, reading to one another, unpacking that, and, and obviously the teacher modeling as well. So it's about thinking not just of, you know, how we read, it's the what. And, and and we keep on thinking around curriculum and choices. Poems are just a great opportunity for that.
0: Fantastic, yes, thank you. Okay, Alex, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm conscious of your time. And you've been really generous with your ideas and your and your, your strategies um, for us so thank you for that so just a last question i guess it's the holy grail that i've saved to last um you know i guess for me trying to encourage kids to, to to embrace the world of reading and to get into reading and to develop a kind of reading addiction is one of my kind of core aims in the classroom um, and there's lots in the book again on how to go about doing that so i wonder if just just to finish up you wouldn't mind sharing a few ideas for, for English teachers flying in with this this idea of inspiring kids to read in the academic year ahead?
1: Yeah it's been it's been something so as a parent of two primary age children you know it's been something i needed to think about how to keep them motivated to read you know regulate um, and, and it's really tricky and if it was Silver bullet easy. You know, if giving a, a, some 15-year-old boy a book about football was the trick to fix reading motivation, then it would all be fixed. It's no silver bullet. I think, if anything, the answer that we need to try and focus on to get that reading for pleasure, which is a, is a crucial goal we should aim for, is we need to try and focus on reading skillfully, reading well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we don't enjoy the things we don't do very well. We don't enjoy it when we struggle and, and we don't enjoy it when we you know we overtly look like we're struggling in front of our peers as well. So the best thing we can do is to focus on children being skilled readers. And, and that takes reading practice and it takes, you know, all of that stuff we talked about being strategic. And if we focus on that, then the pleasure comes. Uh, it's just that it's probably more of an, a goal than it is us you know with a quick easy fix with just a book choice now i think there are points around book choice and book access that really matter so if one in eight disadvantaged children don't own a book and for the last six months they haven't read then it's going to be a a pretty fair hurdle for them to read a really tricky text in the classroom at the minute Mm. so there is something about getting that reading access as early as we possibly can and then we also know that we're motivated by things like choice. So if we have elements of, of choice, that helps. If we have goals, that helps. If it's a bit social, that helps. So one of the things with my little boy, Noah, um, who's eight, um, I've wanted him to be reading quite regularly, you know, and while he's at home, he's not quite got that you know classroom environment where it's you know the first thing to think about. So one of the things we created is a bit of a social nudge. So we arranged with the parents of his best friend to read the same book. They happened Mm -hmm. to have um, a Walliams book um, that they, they both had. And we got them reading chunks of chapters. And then every few days we had a little video chat about it and it might have included some time playing on the Switch after it, <laughs> but gave Noah a goal for his reading mm. and it gave a social element that's so important for reading. And also because it was his good friend, it's making reading feel normal and natural and part of what you do. And, and over time, it became less about making him do stuff. You know, it just became a practiced habit for him. And that's what we need to try and establish. Reading skillfully, doing all of those removing of barriers, and then trying to put those nudges in place, offering book choices that are well calibrated, trying to make it social, making sure they've got steady access to books. And 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 practice, practice, practice. You know, whatever way we can support it in the classroom um, and then outside the classroom. I think an appropriate last point is we, we often get anxious about children not reading outside the classroom you know not reading for pleasure and I I do understand that and we know that those teenagers who read for pleasure outside the classroom have better outcomes than their peers and and it's often a good marker of if you're reading for pleasure you're very skillful and you've got good knowledge of the world that helps you do well at school but I think a, a, a reality is that children teenagers read lots within the school day they read lots in every classroom and not just in the English classroom, in the history classroom, in the biology classroom. And and if we can harness and be really strategic about every reading opportunity in the school day in, in each classroom, I actually think we will be supporting students to be really skilled readers and that is the foundation that's the platform to read for pleasure to read habitually you know to read you know be that that addict for fiction or non-fiction or whatever you know gives you gives you kicks from reading so so for me you know if we just concentrate on getting it right in the classroom every opportunity is seized every moment every sentence level approach every opportunity to read aloud we're just deliberate and skilled about it. I actually think we will offer that platform for reading motivation for life, and and students might once they've got past all of the challenges of exams come back to reading. I, I speak to countless parents who say, oh, they didn't read at school because often they didn't have time. A lot of our most you know hardworking students have just got a lot of homework and and they're a bit tired out of, of reading and. and and it's not so um, pleasurable for them. So a lot of a lot of students, as long as they're reading with skill, that motivation will come. They'll do well in our classrooms and in school. And that just opens up a whole lifetime where they can come to reading. They can follow you know, any addiction and, and they can come and go with it. Um, so for me, it's about skilled reading in the classroom and all the rest follows.
0: Alex, you, you somehow have managed to... Uh extraordinarily motivate me and energize me about as I say our, our our real challenge and focus as as English teachers so I really really appreciate you giving up your time to do that you've made it you've made it literally seem much more manageable and and, and I guess much more practical in terms of trying to get to grips with with the, the, the reading challenges we face so I really really appreciate that. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, just just for listeners, where can they get hold of Closing the Reading Gap and, and follow you on Twitter and read your blog and things like that? If you wouldn't mind sharing that just to finish off.
1: Yeah, so um, Closing the Reading Gap is published by Routledge, so you can on the Routledge website you can buy it, you can get a free chapter and there's some um, good book club questions you can access for free there too or you can go to um, Amazon and, and all good bookshops. My website's called theconfidentteacher.com and I've got a resources page, which has got um, resources I've created just specifically for this book. So some of those whole class reading strategies I talked about, some things about reading challenge, et cetera, you can freely download them. And hopefully they're, they're really useful for English teachers to share, to talk about in department meetings, et cetera. So there's lots that you can you know, dip into um, before you ever get to the book.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Alex, and thanks for inspiring us English teachers at the start of the year. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Cheers, Jamie. I hope tomorrow goes better than some of your lessons today. Well, listen,
0: after all this advice, Alex, I'm going to be flying. They're not going to know what's in front of them. Brilliant stuff there from Alex. Um, I hope you found it helpful. If anything, for me, it reiterated just how much thinking needs to go behind the teaching of reading in our classrooms. Uh, and I think my own uh, clearly rubbish lessons uh, we discussed are are a real case in point. And for me, there's definite changes to my own practice I'll be making as a result. And I think the first is in thinking much more strategically about the reading demands I put in front of students and also I guess seeking to be much more collegiate about those decisions in departments and trying to find the right and appropriate reading material for students. I'm also really looking forward to trying some of those excellent whole-class reading strategies and I guess that, that really exciting project of trying to nurture students' confidence when reading aloud. So a massive thank you again to Alex for his time there. Uh, next month, Jennifer Webb, who is the author of Teach Like a Writer, which is a fantastic book about the teaching of writing, will be on the podcast to talk about, um, I guess, that other absolute essential it's the sort of rudiment and basic of our English teaching. How can we support our students to write effectively and for a range of different demands? Um, Until then, uh, I really hope you have a safe and positive start back to the school year. Uh, I'm on Twitter at TeachGratitude1 and I would uh, really appreciate hearing any feedback you might have on um, how to improve
1: this podcast. Thank you.